Corporate Transformation. Der Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management. Powered by PwC. Zur Transformation von Unternehmen und ihrer Kultur. Von Entscheidern für Entscheider. Oder von Unternehmern für Unternehmer. Dear listeners, uh, we welcome you to another edition of our podcast series, Leading Corporate Transformation, the WHU or WHU podcast powered by PwC. My name is Martin Glaum. I'm a professor of international accounting at the WHU, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. With me, as always in this series, is Gori von Hirschhausen from PwC, who co-hosts these podcasts. Gori? Hello, listeners. Uh, very well to be back. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, my name is Guri von Hirschhausen. I'm leading our management consulting practice. My job as a consultant is to support companies on their business transformation journey. And uh, we like to say from strategy through execution in, uh, is what we do. And uh, my focus is to digitize the enabling functions like finance. And this is why My focus for our talk today is to understand how a prominent grown-up company developed itself over the last 10 years. This brings me to our guest today. We are very honored and pleased to have Sebastian, CFO of Westwing, with us today. Sebastian, welcome to our podcast. Sebastian, would you be so kind to introduce yourself and Westwing to all our listeners who might not have heard about Westwing yet? Yes. So maybe I start first with myself. So thank you very much. My name is Sebastian Säuberlich. I'm 43 years old. I studied in Karlsruhe, um, then started my career as a consultant at Bain Company. During that time, I had the opportunity to do an MBA at INSEAD before then joining a small family business that I helped turning around for two years. Then I had a stopover in mid-cap private equity at Deutsche Private Equity, a growth-focused um, investor. Uh, before I finally joined Westwing in 2014, did several roles. I started as an MD for a daily themes business in Germany, then moved on and helped the private label business or Westwing Collection, as we call it now, business to develop. And since three years, I'm in finance now and the last two years as a group CFO. And yeah, privately, I'm married, have three kids. And when the tr time allows, try to play a bit of basketball here and there. Yeah, for those that don't know Westwing, we're... The um, inspirational home and living e-commerce business in Europe. So basically we sell through two channels. On the one hand, we have our daily themes. On the other hand, we have a permanent assortment and we sell um, home and living products on a daily basis to our customers. We have a very high loyalty of the business model. I guess we come to that also later and yeah, see ourselves basically as a shoppable magazine. So not just a pure shop, but like we want to inspire and entertain our customers and do that uh, with, with the web page we have and all the products that we sell. Sebastian, um, why would people buy furniture online? I mean, you, you already spoke about the concept uh, of a shoppable magazine and you used the word inspirational. So what makes you inspirational and, and what makes you a magazine rather than just a web page on which I can look at, you know, furniture and think, you know, whether I want to buy this couch or the other. Yeah. So, so I think that's uh, yeah, driven by the, by the two business models or business 
channels that we have. So one, the daily themes. And I think that is basically what drives the inspiration because we curate and select on a daily basis, very good um, product offering for our customers. And it's basically available only four days. So it's a new thing to find out every day. So that is one of the key reasons people quite often visit our page because there's something to explore and something new every day. I think our customers trust us and in the in the way we curate and, and pre-select also the offerings. So it's not like a web page uh, where you can find millions of products and you have to find your way, but we kind of pre-select and curate um, that product that our customers hopefully love and then also some sometimes buy. Okay. Why should you buy um, home and living products online? I think it's 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 very convenient, right? So you don't have to drive hours to to a shopping mall and and spend the time waiting to get in to get out to pay. But you can. It's a very very like yeah cool experience. I think um, to buy online, um, and I think we have also over the last ten years very much. Uh, worked on the on the customer experience that it kind of this delivery is better our packaging is better um, and all these things have improved massively so it should by now be a very comfortable experience mm-hmm. I mean, as you say you have a high customer retention rate high loyalty so it seems that with your daily offerings uh, generally with your friends, you're very, very successful, which which also means that you seem to know your customers very well, right? So because otherwise, the idea of giving them every day that might interest them doesn't work. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, of course, we, we we know a lot about our customers, but I think it's, it's not only knowing about them. It's also, I think, um, they're trying to to set kind of the, the the tone or set the standards of, of, of what we what we can sell. And that's, I think, why we have a very strong creative focus and our creative people um, very much invest a lot of time. Okay, what are the trends? What are the things people we think they want to have? And also sometimes they don't know that at the morning what they what they want to buy. So it's 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 I think our style and creative experience and focus um, that helps us a lot in in, in ensuring that these offerings kind of fit to our customers and also are not getting getting boring, but are entertaining and exciting every day. Looking at the size of the business in terms of revenue, how, how big is Westwing? In 2021, um, unaudited financials, but we gave, gave a kind of a trading update. We did 522 million in revenues and uh, we grew 21%. That's impressive. So talking about growth, I mean, uh, how is the correlation with the pandemic, the situation that people were shopping from home? What was the impact on your business model? Yeah, I think um, yeah, there was a strong impact that we saw. So I think we, I can describe it with going through phases. I think there was early days like March 2020, where basically yeah, lockdown started. And so and the, the level of insecurity was very, or uncertainty and insecurity was very high. We were basically preparing for a downturn scenario, right? We were saying, okay, what cost can we maybe cut? What, uh, how can we save uh, cash? Um, how do we deal with the situation? And then we started to realize that actually we are like benefiting from the situation. So kind of the order volumes went up, customer acquisition numbers went up steadily and we had a very very strong march and also april and may um and we we saw kind of there was a 
yeah, I, I always try to explain it was a fast forward of e-commerce penetration. But I think home and living e-commerce penetration is still low, and, but was much lower before COVID than it is now. But I think it took a two to three year acceleration and, and kind of all these things moved online in a, in a very short time frame. So I think, um, yeah, that's, and that helped us obviously. Because with size in our business model also comes profitability. I mean, we were like barely profitable before this, slightly negative on adjusted EBTA. And, and um, in 2020, for the first time, we had double digit um, adjusted EBTA. So kind of the size helped us tremendously in realizing economies of scale, utilizing our logistics network better, and then kind of being much more profitable than we have been before. But obviously... That was something we always planned, but um, seeing it then in reality and, and, go, and that was super good for us and gave us the confidence that we have the right business model if we have the right size to be very profitable. Huh? So, but it stayed on the same size? Like no. And so basically, I think we had, a, as I said, very strong um, Q2 then. Uh, and then over the summer, it slowed down a bit. I mean, there was also then restrictions lifting, but it was still strong. And then we saw a very, very strong Q4 2020 and Q1 2021. So there, I think, I mean, we do the majority of our sales in the Dach region. Um, there was like a heavy lockdown. Um, people still, um, I think... Oh, had had a lot of money they could spend and so it continued and i think even q4 2020 q1 2021 were much stronger and then from q2 2021 it started to slow down a bit so q2 was still strong then summer was even like stronger summer seasonality than we usually see and also yeah, q4 was 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 in terms of relative growth actually it was negative on gmv so it was It was slowing down, but what we can see kind of the, the general change or demand shift, that is there to stay, right? And now we are fluctuating around that a bit. And obviously, after the year of 2020 with 60% growth, we did also not expect to add another year with 60% growth. So we're happy with the 21. But also we see it now. And I think you see that in a lot of e-commerce companies that kind of the comparables of, of the last year are very high, especially the first half year. And, and so it will be tougher to put growth on this. But what we believe is that the general trend is fully intact and now we are fluctuating around it a bit. Okay, cool. And But looking at the moment, um, what are the biggest challenges for West Wing at, at the moment then? I think currently what are the challenges? I think we see temporal challenges from the supply chains. We see that Our suppliers are increasing their lead times. And uh, so the lead time volatility is quite high. That means we have to buffer this with more stock. And also demand volatility is quite high. I mean, we went into the COVID phase and kind of demand ex yeah, exploded somehow. And now it's going back. And to predicting that is not that easy. So kind of that's a challenge for us. Um, and managing then the inflow of goods and, and, and keeping kind of track of everything. And at the same time, um, container cost increased drastically. Um, that's also something you can read in the press. And um, that's something, I mean, for us, it was always a small expense and we have managed more or less like a C, C product, right? There was not much attention on buying C freight rates because it was like, it was a commodity. Uh, unfortunately, this commodity got five times more expensive over the last months. So um, it's now a bigger topic. But first of all, it's costing us profitability. We try to pass on some of that, but we can't pass on all and we hope that this will relax over the next year so for me that's like temporal challenges uh, that will impact our bottom line results um, but that don't impact our long-term vision or our long-term ability to gener 
to be very profitable. And I think another big challenge that everyone has in the market is that I see the war for talent, how I think it was called a couple of years ago, when I think it was not a war yet, but now it, it really became one. So kind of hiring and retaining uh, the right talent, um, I think that is a challenge um, because also given the corona situation and now the new working policies, basically the, the job market also is now more global competition than a local one. And people are uh, yeah, actually also looking everywhere. So it's, it's, it's tougher. And that's also one of the reasons we invested heavily into our HR and also people um, development over the last year. And I think that's something that's also there to stay and it's not Corona related, but uh, that was kind of also kind of maybe uh, yeah, a starting or tipping point in, in the change. So that will be a challenge for the next years. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sebastian, uh, you are a uh, e-commerce company, that's for sure, and you have experienced tremendous growth over the last two years. Uh, you know, it's, uh, almost doubled your your revenues over the last two years. Um, at the same time, you know, while you have this platform business uh, behind it, is of course um, supply chain and logistics that uh, you, you need to you need to manage. How do you scale this in such a uh, short time? And looking forward, you have communicated that uh, you want to achieve uh, revenues of about one billion. Um, and uh, you know how, how how can you scale the operations behind the platform? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's most interesting for those processes that don't where you don't have the economies of scale. So I think if you talk about my back office, um, I'm glad we basically do more of the same. So in kind of the number of purchase orders didn't significantly increase, but the volume per purchase order, but right, like for me in the admin workload has not drastically increased, but I think we did a great job in scaling our logistics. I mean, we had to yeah, double volumes from one month to the other, like kind of. And I think, yeah, we did a good job. And I think one advantage is we, are, we were prepared because for us usually q4 is seasonally the strongest quarter and then we have the black friday week where we kind of have yeah probably four or five times the revenue of, of, a, of a normal week so that that's the skills we have we have developed over the last years like scaling up the operations for short term um speak uh, we could um use them quite well for i mean we were lucky that then this wasn't a one-week peak or the demand kept coming in so we had to keep keep that capacity but we were like experienced to to scale it up we were also i think lucky that we had enough capacity in our warehouses to deal with the growth so we invested into a new warehouse i think in 2019 uh, that helped us now because we had the space we had the flexibility to do that <clears throat> and that's also um, something when we think going forward What we have to invest into is, again, uh, more capacity in our supply chain or in our distribution network um, to be able to also then take the next level of growth and be prepared. I mean, this time I think we were, you can say we were kind of lucky because we had this spare capacity, but we want to now um, also develop the, the next uh, warehouses to, to be then able to also deliver the one billion you mentioned. And I think another element that helps us is also that with our daily themes business that's a pure cross-docking business or mostly cross-docking so there you 
you need the handling capacity, but you don't need the storage capacity. So we could grow also with the existing infrastructure quite well by just adding a second shift uh, or in even very high times adding a third shift. Um, but that's, that's super good. Huh? So Sebastian, for the non-expert in your business, what is a cross-docking business? Okay, yeah, sorry. <laughs> It's basically, we collect the orders from our customers for a period of four days. Let's say that's a typical sales campaign. And then we place this order with the supplier. And then he sends basically all the customer's orders in one big bulk to our warehouse. And we we don't take them in stock and then resend them, but we just cross-dock. So kind of we we, um, we immediately send it out again, but in smaller packages and, and dedicated to each customer. So and by that, you, you only need kind of a handling space, uh, but not a big storage space even to grow significantly your business. Okay. Good. Changing track a little bit, uh, but kind of staying with supply side and um, the logistics. Online shopping does not always have a good reputation, at least for sustainability, with you know high transportation costs and at least for some companies that is quite uh, well known, high rates of products that are returned. Is this a problem for Westwing too? Obviously, our return rates are much much lower than in in, in fashion. Um, so I think it is something we, we always will offer to our customers because we want to make them happy. And of course, sometimes there's things you, you cannot plan or then you don't like the color or you don't like the, the, the fit of anything. So I think we, we always will have returns and we should be also in, uh, enabling the returns. But on the same, at the same time, we should work against that to minimize that as much as possible, not only due to the Yeah, economic impact, but also like, yeah, or the environmental and the economic impact. So, because also return for us is, is, is usually not a profitable order at the end. Um, and that's also where we invest. So better pictures, um, better, better descriptions and so on. And it helps uh, reducing return rates, but I think it, there will always be returns. Yeah. Maybe that's uh, a good also point in time in our discussion to maybe switch to your CFO role. So, um, Sebastian, how is it to be the CFO Westwing? What what keeps you awake at night? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I mean I think it's a super exciting role because we we are like very very um, as you said high highly growing business with with com with also some complexity. I mean we're operating in 11 European markets. We have a significant number of legal entities we have to manage and to maintain. So I think it's it's, it's It's for sure not a boring job, so it's good. Um, and what keeps me awake, I think, during night, I mean, I'm always, I'm always kind of um, worried is the wrong word, but I think I'm always like looking, okay, is that, are we developing in the direction we wanted? Is the kind of, are we, are our margins intact? I think margin is a key focus of our work, so kind of the retail margins, because we have seen also in the past, we had low contribution margins and that that's not really an attractive business because even if you grow, kind of not a, not much falls through to your bottom line. So we really focus on high contribution margins because that allow us either to be more profitable or to exp um, spend more money on marketing um, or technology or other areas. So I think margin is always kind of the worry and always the top line is always as a retailer, the worry number one because uh, the consumer is, is, is not predictable all the time. So it's every day also um, yeah, yeah uh, important for us to see where we end up. I mean, being a CFO and coming from the private equity background and uh, from the consulting, 
How is it in such a very creative and uh, let's say marketing uh, savvy environment? Are you the bad cop uh, <laughs> when, it, when it comes to uh, taking decisions in the company? Mm, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm the bad cop, but I think I'm sometimes the the the, yeah, the conscience, how do you say, the economical consciousness or something of the business. So I try to focus, um, I mean, all the creativity in a way that is A, driving results and B, also what we can afford, right? That's why we have a kind of strict budgeting processes uh, where we allocate the the resources to to where we think this will add the most value for the business and it's kind of something we do our CEO CEO together uh, and once we have that kind of we try to stick to it and obviously on the way we get smarter we make trade-offs we make changes but I think we always have kind of a yeah some 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 boundaries that are that are guiding our decisions throughout the year and that helps and um, but it's also something that we have developed last year and, and the year before we kind of changed the budget basically on a monthly basis because we, we we were surprised by some things and some things worked out some things were not working so kind of we we're making then agile shifts but i think yeah our creative people um work very well together kind of with the business people and i think they 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 know that not everything can be financed but we also know that they often have very good ideas and we should look how we can finance it because it in the long term will pay off for the customer. You know? So if I may jump in, you uh, just used the word agile and obviously your business is very fast anyways. Uh, you have these daily changes in your set of offers and the products you, you do and so on. So what are the metrics you use to monitor such a type of business and, and uh, that you use to steer that kind of business? Um, I assume that you use probably in your daily business a lot of non-financial metrics. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, I think there are, like first of all, some some metrics that we also report to the outside that obviously are also very important for us to steer. And when we look at our non-financial KPIs, and they're to a certain degree also financial, but they're non-PNL financial KPIs, let me call it that way. So we look at our Western collection share. Um, that is basically um, giving us an indication of how much of our sales or GMV we do. A GMV is cross-merchandise value, basically the order entry of a of, a, of our business. Um, so we we see how much we do with our own products, and we have a strategic target of bringing this to fifty percent, um, and then so we can see if we track on plan or not. Then obviously we look at even daily we look at our gmv so what comes in um, across the different countries the different channels uh, we look at orders average order value because that kind of is also an indication for interest but aov also for profitability we look at our customers so how many active customers do we have active customer defined as a customer for the that did a purchase in the last 12 months we look at their orders and gmv we look at mobile visits app visits and all these things so kind of That's kind of high level, but then we also look at, at in each individual business at much, much more KPIs, right? Like um, in supply chain, they look uh, at availability. In, in our daily themes, we look into the newsletter opening rates, for example, to see how attractive was this newsletter, what can we do better with the next. So kind of like, there are tons of, of data we look into, but also, as you said, as our business, especially the daily themes, is kind of changing quite frequently, there's also only a certain... Uh, so some data is not really helpful. So we don't look into 
as individual products in the daily themes, how they, how they perform and then try to kind of optimize this because we want to be more like, it should be more entertaining. And if we have the same white glass uh, or white, uh, a cup of tea or whatever that sells very well, I mean, data would tell you, bring it online every day, but that would then fast be boring. So kind of, it's, it's also kind of, the, I think making sure that, uh, we also allow this creative, and inspirational input, like we discussed before, and, and, and not only look at data. I mean, when you talk about the way how you analyze the performance of the business uh, KPIs, you look at me coming from finance, uh, you know, I, I always know when it comes to data, it often also becomes messy. What do I mean by this? Uh, it becomes, uh, uh, of course, a lot of, um, let's say, data typing and uh, consolidation, consolidating work. So my question, um, Sebastian, how how, <laughs> how digitized is the back office of finance within your organization? Yeah. So if we think about, I mean, first of all, the question of the data, I think we have decided very early on to have a central data warehouse. So that is super helpful because it consolidates basically all the data from different systems into one infrastructure that is basically um, for, for kind of expert users openly available. So kind of all our departments can collect and do their analysis that they need. There are obviously also predefined definitions, predefined analysis in the data warehouse, but there's also a lot of flexibility. So I can access logistics data in very detail if I want. I can access sales data. So kind of that's that's super helpful. And I think um, we did a very good job in the beginning uh, to once define the infrastructure well, and then kind of it, it just it's growing with the business. And it's super helpful. But uh, that's mainly for non-financial KPIs, right? So kind of all the business things. Um, but for a retailer, I mean, most of the financial KPIs are driven from your top line and the product profitability. So kind of, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it has, it has most of what we need. Um, in terms of, um, how digitized are we in finance? I think there's also two, two things to separate. So I think one on the, so to say accounts receivable side of everything that sales, that's fully automized, right? We do the, we get this from our pre-systems. Um, the, the, the documents are flowing into our ERP. So that's kind of no one is really touching that. Um, but then we have the other side, it's our <laughs> accounts payable. And there I would say uh, we are still like bookkeeping, like like a traditional uh, mm -hmm. small, small, medium enterprise. So uh, we are not very automated, but that's kind of on the roadmap um, for the next years. Um, um, but first we want to move to the new ERP um, system. I think we might talk about that later. Yeah. Um, so, and before that, we are not investing into automated automization or, or OCR or any of these things because we believe that's the way till we have the new system and then these things make sense. But yeah, I think you would probably be surprised how, how manual we are still in some processes. But you were mentioning the ERP and let's let's already uh, touch this one. Um, looking at your ERP implementation, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about where you are on the journey and what the challenges are and what, yeah. what you are expecting from the implementation? Yes, I mean, we have decided to Uh, upgrade our ERP. So we, we are, uh, we worked with, or we are working currently with Navision and we're now moving on to Business Central, what is basically kind of uh, both Microsoft products. So it's, it's, it's a follow up, but we haven't, uh, changed like the version for quite a while. So we 
we're like accelerating that. And we, we have redecided this couple of years back because we see, okay, it's getting more and more. Data is more complex um, in terms of VAT setups. That's kind of all needs to be solved. So we said, okay, let's start Greenfield and basically restart this, the whole the whole process. And that's what we did. Uh, and we decided to start with one smaller country um, that actually went live beginning of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that was, I think, also a very good idea to take like one pilot country that is not so complex in terms uh, and, and really get going, right? Because, I mean, for 11 countries, uh, markets, uh, if you want to, yeah, if you want to write the requirement book, uh, you can also spend a couple of years and by then the business has changed a lot. So, and we try to also be agile here, but it's not as easy as I know other software developments because at the end it needs to work. So, so we did one country, Netherlands, uh, that worked well. Now we're in the middle of implementing, um, Germany. So that's our biggest, um, biggest entity. Um, that's hopefully happening this year and maybe some lessons learned. I think we in the beginning underestimated the the complexity and the time and the workload it has right we just thought nah, we're just bringing everything together from the pre-systems it's anyway there so it shouldn't be a lot of work but it is huh? so you have to be really focused on this you have resources that drive this it's not enough if i do it like with 10 percent of my time or anything um second thing I think also very important, you need to know what you want in the beginning. So because there are levels, like you can optimize a lot, you can optimize little, um, you can customize a lot, you can integrate a lot or not. So you really have to know, okay, what are the processes you want to be fully integrated with your systems? What are the ones where you, where you can actually work with manual steps? And, and, uh, so because if you don't know that or, uh, then kind of you end up in a disaster and also, the, the hard thing is I think everybody always like aims for 100% full automation, but then forgets on the way is the trade trade off worth it, right? Like I don't want to write like, I don't know, two weeks of code for something that takes an account 30 minutes a month. Right. So, yeah. uh, but so that's yeah. kind of the, the things you have to manage in the process that you get the right balance of these things. You also don't want to have a new system that's actually nobody's liking. So it needs to be a trade off. Yeah. And I think last but not least, um, testing, also keeping a lot of capacity for testing um, um, and data migration. That's also something we learned and underestimated in the beginning. No? Corey and Sebastian, if you allow, I would like to take our discussion a little bit uh, on uh, another track now and look at the stock market and the stock market performance of your shares. Um, you, uh, <laughs> you did an IPO in uh, 2018, in September, selling the shares for 26 euros. Then uh, the shares lost uh, almost 90% of their value, r- rose very strongly again, uh, with a high then very strongly in, uh, with a high in, uh, in May 2021 at 40, uh, I'm sorry, at 54 euros. However, they have gone down again to roughly, uh, you know, 20 euros. So again, somewhat under the, um, the emission price. How can you explain this dramatic roller coaster of share price? I'm sure your your investors must have very good nerves. But how how come (laughs) how come that uh, quite obviously investor expectations have changed so profoundly? uh, You know, over such relatively short periods of times. Yeah, yeah, I think very difficult to explain. To be honest, like if I look 
and you also from, from the academic um, view of, of kind of discounted future cash flows uh, and interest rates, basically, right? I don't think that these things so fundamentally change on the way. So, I mean, I, mean, I think currently, and, and I can also come back to our story, but also currently you see the volatility in the stock markets is from my point just crazy i think today delivery hero lost i think 25 in market cap um by providing um yeah, i think a different outlook than the market expected but not significantly different different i mean i don't know snap and meta um <laughs> earning calls also kind of send the stock down 25 and the other one up 47 or something so i think volatility is just crazy and is not related to the expectations of the business To, to the degree I, I, I would guess. So that's one. Um, but that's just recent volatility. If we come to our stock price, I think when we started in, uh, on the stock exchange 2018, I think overall the, the, the multiples was, were still very high and we got a, a quite a high multiple um, for the business. And I think what happened then in 2019 was that the, the IPO expectations were not fully fulfilled. So we were growing slower, um, profitability was slightly lower. And I think that started then into people um, kind of yeah, losing a bit. Oh, I don't want to call, call it trust, but maybe trust um, into, into the stock and also into the outlook. right? And I think then the market, in my view, um, again, overreacted because I think at the two euros <laughs> you were mentioning, we were trading below cash, right? So um, maybe also a bit an overreaction but also it's just like it depends a bit on, on, on yeah who's selling who's buying and so on and then clearly during covid um and i mean people realized i think even before that um we i think it's also what i always want to tell so i think q1 2020 without any covid we already had good results growing stronger again showing higher profitability um, so I think that's kind of when it started to stabilize. And then obviously we had the Corona, uh, tailwinds that kind of yeah, carried forward or moved forward the e-commerce penetration by a couple of years and also our business. Um, interestingly, um, and then I think the market kind of, um, yeah, overreacted to the top by, by bringing us kind of to a multiple uh, of 1.8. That's, um, in, future sales so i think that's that's also quite high and then i think yeah there was a sector rotation so everyone wanted mm -hmm. to get out of these e-commerce or stocks corona winners and now we're back to let's say roughly ipo value and that is i think we're we're the much better company than at I ipo we have proven that we can be profitable we are much bigger in size we're ahead of the ipo plan so to say um so um yeah that's then again uh, I also think a bit strange and also our expectations and also the, the, the expectations we have communicated have not changed as drastically as the stock price did. But then if you look at the full market, um, everybody, I, th I think we're, we're just like in line with, with that sector of the market. Well, it's, uh, in, in any case, it's a very, very interesting uh, development and very traumatic in a way. Uh, looking back uh, at the, the beginning of your of your company, uh, Westwing was funded from early on, uh, partly by Rocket Internet. Um, Rocket then, or Rocket Internet then, sold out. Uh, that were all, all of what we're talking about now is, is you know, communicated. It's public knowledge, and and uh, they sold most of their shares. 
only then to reinvest later in uh, 2019 when it was announced that they again held uh, something like 25% of your shares. So could you tell us something about uh, the, you know, what is behind these moves of, um, of uh, Rocket Internet going in and out and about your current relationship to Rocket Internet? Yeah, so I think we're not discussing investment strategies and decisions with our investors. So we talk mostly with them about the business. So I cannot uh, cannot answer that. Or if I would, I had to speculate. So I, I, I don't want to do that. But what I can say that we are super happy that having this shareholder back because he's a very experienced e-commerce investor. He believes obviously in long-term potential of our company and probably saw a very attractive opportunity to invest at 2019 when we were trading at a very low valuation. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think. Um, In terms of, um, I think, the the role, I think, is is like any of the other bigger shareholders um, that that we are having. So we're communicating like with our IR department frequently with our investors. But basically, that's it. Otherwise, um, we're a public markets company. I mean, Westbing <laughs> is such an interesting company, and I'm sure we, we can talk for many more hours about Westbing. Nevertheless, our listeners are also very, very interested in the person behind the role, the Basin. So um, it would be also interesting to learn a little bit about yourself and, and how you manage. Um, so please tell us a little bit about your management and, or your leadership style. How do you lead? How do you delegate? What, what rates you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's always an interesting topic. I think, um, yeah, I try to know how I would describe my leadership styles. I think that my job is to uh, enable my, my direct report and my teams to do their best possible job. And that often means by, uh, trying uh, to kind of keep away some of the unnecessary work. So I try like to protect them that they can really focus on, on the targets and the, the things we have agreed. Um, uh, sometimes I fail also at this, um, but I think that's kind of number one, kind of give, having clear accountabilities and, and enable people to deliver on those and then keeping, yeah, keeping their backs free so that they can actually do that. Also, I think by now in my role, I have quite a senior and experienced team. So that's super helpful because you can kind of, you can, you don't have to micromanage, right? That's something. I still probably sometimes tend to do on some topics and my, my direct reports would probably say so, but I try to avoid and then really try to focus on, on the results with them and helping them achieving them and try, try to be open for discussions and, and, and to, to be a sparring partner and also to help if they need support in terms of talking to other departments, then obviously sometimes I, I can, I can be of help. Yeah. yeah. I mean, looking back uh, the years with Westwing, is there something where you would say, I would do this different now with all the knowledge that I have? Is there something where you would say, that's a great advice for younger people if they take on a career to become CFO of such a great company like Westwing? Yeah, I mean, they're for sure. I mean, (laughs) every year there are things we would be doing differently. and, uh, And I think... I mean, some of the learnings everyone has to, to do on his own, but I think overall, what I have learned, like also uh, being a public market CFO is probably what helps is um, um, I, uh, under promise and over deliver, right? Yeah. I think we are like very 
honest and sometimes also too optimistic in, in what we what we think and that's not really valued by, by by the public markets i think so that's something i would probably give some kind of um no one is kind of sad if you if you positively surprised right so yeah. that's something i had and i'm still learning i guess so <laughs> but i would probably do a bit differently um other than that i think yeah there are a lot of things that you learn on the way what what you could be doing differently and you should be doing better next time yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you were with a private equity company. You have been in strategy consulting. Is there something where you say, this is something I really brought from this experience to West Wing? Yes, I think, I mean, every step, uh, I think, of my career or life uh, uh, forms you as a person and gives you experiences that you can use. But I think, um, yes, management consulting, especially as a start, I think is super good because you learn, um, yeah, you have a very steep learning curve. Um, you get exposed to a lot of businesses mm -hmm. diff and, and different business problems. That's super helpful to get a wider understanding, right? You're not only do working usually in one industry or on one topic, but you, you get a lot of things to think about and to help. Um, then obviously I think it's, it strengthened my analytical toolkit and built the foundations of that and frameworks that you can use. So I, yeah. I enjoyed very much the life as a management consultant. I didn't want to do it forever, but I think I learned a lot of valuable things. And uh, also kind of service mentality helps. Um, so um, yeah. you, you see yourself as a service provider and then that's also helpful. And then PE, I think also you learn different things. Um, what I learned there is what, what brought it clearly. I think um, that you have to be as an investor Uh, you have to be in the right market and, and competitive position is super important because if you're in the wrong market, even the best management team is, is, will probably not help you. Um, but also the second point, having a great management team is also super important and this alignment, I think in alignment between shareholder and management of where you want to go uh, and how to get there is super important because then everybody can do his work. If you have a misalignment here, you always kind of get into these discussions um, and that's kind of not very productive. And I think in general, as an investor, you have to be patient. I mean, there are times, I mean, look at e-commerce. There were times e nobody wanted to own e-commerce stocks. Um, there were times when everybody wanted to own e-commerce stocks. And now maybe we're in the middle of that, but you have to be patient, right? You can't, uh, you, yeah, you shouldn't be selling uh, when, it's, when it's not on, on vogue to sell. Yeah. Um, it is a tradition uh, in this podcast that towards the end, we always ask our um, guessed whether uh, he or she has a book recommendation for our listeners. Now, Sebastian, I don't know whether you're a book person, but uh, you know, do you have something that you would like to recommend to our yes, listeners? Yes, absolutely. No, I, I think I, I try to be a book person. Unfortunately, like time is limited, but I, I, yeah, maybe I have two things. So one is the last book I read. Um, that's Amazon Unbound. I think that's super interesting to see how Jeff Bezos is building this this empire. So I think lots of valuable learnings for how to run a company, uh, but also exciting. I think entertaining and exciting to read, not too boring. So that's cool. And uh, the other one is a book I read. I actually don't read. I had the the audio book, but that is recommended to me by almost every of our investors. So I think for every CFO out there, investors want you to read this book. It's the from uh, William and Thorndike, The Outsiders. And it's about capital allocation and how eight unconventional CEOs kind of uh, had 
had a yeah, radical blueprint for success by um, thinking about uh, capital allocation in a, in a new way. So they are all buying back shares uh, and, and, and making the, the earnings per share go up. That sounds like a good reading, right? Indeed, yeah. indeed. Uh, sounds very interesting. Corey, uh, Sebastian, we thank you very, very, very much for this uh, uh, interesting conversation and for this uh, insights into West Wing, a young and very strongly growing company. You know, in some of our past podcasts, we have visited established companies with long histories. This time we were at a very young company. And uh, that was also very, very interesting to uh, to look at. We thank you, dear listeners, also for your interest in this podcast. And we hope you enjoyed it. And we very much hope to meet with you again in the near future when we again present a new leading transformation podcast. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you also from my side for having me. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed this conversation. Bye-bye. Thanks, Sebastian. Das war Leading Corporate Transformation, ein Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management, powered by PwC. Redaktion PwC, Britta Bormuth und Marvin Rutmann. Produziert in den ChemWeb Digitalstudios. Studios.